So, yeah, today we are looking at this topic of peacemakers, and I'm doing week one, which is this guy, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I should start by saying that uh, I apologize in advance for what will be over the next you know, 40 or 50 minutes or so, uh, some genuinely terrible German pronunciation. Um, when I was in the first year of secondary school, which is now year seven, um, we were taught French and we were taught Welsh. Um, growing up in South Wales, I didn't go to, I didn't grow up in a, a Welsh-speaking community, to be honest, most of the kids that I went to school with could barely speak English, let alone Welsh as well. Um, and so in my first year, um, I got 100% in my French exam and I got 99% in my Welsh exam. And then what happened after that was in the second year of secondary school, you had a choice of doing German or drama. And what was meant to happen, the teachers didn't really tell us, but it was pretty obvious, was that if you had done well in French and Welsh, you were meant to take German. And if you hadn't done all that well, you were meant to take drama. My parents, in their infinite wisdom, allowed me to make this decision. And so, as a 12-year-old kid, on the one hand, you've got learn another complicated language. On the other hand, you've got mess about for a couple of hours a week, stand up on a stage. What was I going to choose? 30 years later, uh, apologies in advance. Um, so Dietrich Bonhoeffer then, he uh, was a German theologian. He was born into a pretty affluent, well-to-do family in Berlin. He was one of eight kids and uh, his early childhood was pretty straightforward. Um, but then the First World War uh, broke out. Um, the Bonhoeffers tried everything to stop their adult kids from having to go to war. But in 1918, just as the war was about to end, the eldest son, Walter, was sent to the front line. He was only in the German army for a fortnight before he was killed. Um, one of the possessions that the Bonhoeffer parents gave to the 12-year-old Dietrich at the time was a Bible that had belonged to Walter. And it was from then that he really started to take theology seriously. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a genius. He completed an undergraduate degree, a master's, and a PhD in theology from the University of Berlin by the time he was 23 years old. And he wanted to be a pastor. Um, the German evangelical church of which he was a part at the time said he was too young at 23 to pastor a church. And so um, what they did is that they sent him on a series of placements around the world. Now I'm going to repeat this just in case Steve missed this. He was training to become a minister and so his church sent him on a series of placements around the world. Just going to leave that one there for a second. Um, he, <laughs> great, exactly. Um, he started in Barcelona and then he moved on to New York. And the plan for Bonhoeffer there in New York was that he'd do some lecturing at the Union Theological Society, um, which was a prestigious college. It was filled mainly with white liberal Christians. But Bonhoeffer quickly got bored of this. And in the winter, he decided to take a long road trip down to Cuba. His route took him through the southern states of the USA um, at the height of the Jim Crow laws, laws which enforced racial segregation. And what he saw there absolutely shocked him. He wrote letters home to Germany which said that the treatment of black people in the USA is shameful and repugnant. But what's interesting about this journey 
is that he didn't just write the letters home. He didn't just get indignant and then move on. The trip changed him. He started to study black theology. Bonhoeffer said, only from black preachers have I heard the genuine proclamation of the gospel in America. So he came back to New York, black churches, the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem, in the height of the Depression in the 1930s. Bonhoeffer threw himself in, he led Sunday schools and even preached a few times, although the congregation apparently preferred their own preacher to this strange, very academic, tall white man. Um, the church in Harlem changed Bonhoeffer. He said that for him it changed Christianity from phraseology to reality. It took it from being words on a page that he stood up and lectured to white, middle-class, liberal Christians in New York into reality. On his next break from college, he traveled around the USA and Mexico. And wherever possible, he'd stop and worship in black churches because he was convicted that a lived out active faith was needed to replace the dry kind of academia that he'd grown up with in Germany. Eventually, he moved back to Germany and he was finally made a minister in the Church of the Evangelical Union. He became a pastor in Berlin, where he insisted on taking a class of the naughtiest boys. Apparently, they used to meet at the top of a big building. And so when he went in on day one, he was walking around this spiral staircase and all the way up the spiral staircase to the top floor to take this class of the naughtiest boys. They were throwing things down at him. <laughs> Border razors, chalk, anything that they could find. He got to the top floor, he spoke to these boys, and he said, right, I'm going to say one thing. I'm going to say after. He walked up the spiral staircase in dead silence. He got to the top floor, and there are rows of boys sitting in silence, ready to hear Dietrich Bonhoeffer teach the gospel. So he had his dream. He was a pastor in Berlin. That's all he'd ever wanted to do. All relatively straightforward to this point, but then it was all to change, because in January 1933, Adolf Hitler became the Chancellor of Germany. Loads of Christians didn't speak out. Turn the other cheek, that's what they were told. Loads of Christians didn't. Loads of churches didn't stand up to Hitler. But Bonhoeffer was incensed by all of this. Two days into Hitler's reign, he went on the radio and he started to rail against this. He said that the Fuhrer wasn't a Fuhrer. He was a seducer sent to lead the German people astray. He was ranting and raving on the radio. And halfway through, the plug was pulled. The electricity was pulled out. He was too dangerous. Hitler was aware of the potential power of the church and the worry that people like Bonhoeffer could manage to get a load of people on side and revolt against him. So he rigged elections to some key positions in the church. And so there were some others, Bonhoeffer, Martin Niemöller, another pastor among them, who opposed this Deutsche Christen faction, which was a part of the church which supported Hitler. And so they, they formed what was called the Confessing Church, which had the stated aim of opposing the government. It meant that Bonhoeffer couldn't get a job in Germany anymore, so he came to Sydenham in South London to minister to a small German congregation there. He didn't spend long there. I've been to Sydenham, I can see why. Um, but actually, he went back to Germany, partly because of the influence of pastors like Karl Barth, who's one of the greatest theologians of the last century. 
um, Bart said that um, he was abandoning the house of the church while it was on fire. So he moved back to Germany. He set up an underground theological college training new ministers who could resist the Nazification of Christianity in Germany. Bart was then forced into exile. Niemöller was under constant watch. So when he was 30, Dietrich Bonhoeffer became the de facto head of the largest Christian body dedicated to resistance in Nazi Germany. He then joined the military intelligence bureau so that he could spy from within it. It was known as the Abwehr. It was the center of anti-Nazi activity. Um, Bonhoeffer realized through his contacts in the anti-Nazi movement that Germany was about to go to war any day. So he escaped. He went to the States. But his, conscious, his conscience niggled at him. And after only a couple of months in America, he got on the last scheduled steamer back to Germany. As soon as he arrived, he joined the Abwehr to try and seek to bring down the Nazi regime from the inside. It was the Abwehr who were responsible for the assassination attempt on Hitler's life. On the 20th of July, 1944, somebody walked into a meeting where Hitler was and put a briefcase down. He turned around, he walked out of the room and a bomb went off, but it failed. It failed to assassinate Hitler. It took the Gestapo months to work out who was responsible for this. And one of the people responsible for this plot was the theologian, the pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was sent to a concentration camp and then Hitler ordered Bonhoeffer's death. So we're here on Remembrance Sunday, the day where we remember not just those who have been lost but also those who have been impacted by war. Those soldiers who did come home from the front line but were traumatized by what they saw. We've talked already about the futility of war. And we've talked already about working for peace. I'm, as Steve pointed out, wearing a white poppy, which I do every Remembrance Sunday, which symbolizes not just those who have been impacted by all wars, but it also symbolizes a commitment to nonviolence and to peacemaking. I got mine from um, the Peace Pledge Union, which is an organization which says that it is an unashamedly pacifist organization. Now, one of the interesting things is that before the Second World War, that is a description that Dietrich Bonhoeffer would have signed up to. He was a pacifist. He wrote about pacifism. And yet by the end of the war, he was executed in a concentration camp for plotting to assassinate Hitler. What happened? What changed? How did this pacifist pastor go from being a pacifist to a would-be assassin? One of the interesting um, things in this story uh, relates to something that I saw in the news this week. Lots of you will be aware uh, of an interview that Jacob Rees-Mogg gave on LBC Radio this week where he said that the victims of the Grenfell Tower disaster should have had more common sense and they should have left their flats when the fire started, even when they'd been told not to. Now, leaving aside any discussion of the sensitivity of comments like this and the fact that the 
people were just doing exactly what they'd been told to do if a fire ever started. One of the articles that I read about this story was written by a psychologist who said there's absolutely no way that Jacob Rees-Mogg could actually say what he would do if he was in a similar position. Because it's not until you're in such a high-pressure environment that you would actually know how your body would react. It's commonly known as fight-or-flight response, more accurately known as the acute stress response. It's a physiological reaction that occurs when something happens to you that's terrifying, either mentally or physically. The response is triggered by the release of hormones, and it either prepares your body to stay and fight or to get away, to run away to safety. It wasn't quite as acute as this, but what Bonhoeffer had to deal with was a similar threat. It's one thing for us this morning, isn't it, to sit in a comfortable auditorium in central London in a country that's not currently engaged in a war on our front and say, well, if I was in that situation, I would definitely have stuck by my pacifist principles. It's another thing to need to respond to that acute pressure situation who knows what approach he would have taken then? Bonhoeffer found himself in the reality of the theoretical example that people have used for the last 70 years when talking about violence. You're a pacifist, well, what about Hitler? You say you're a pacifist, but what would you have done if he'd had the chance to kill Hitler? Bonhoeffer had been a pacifist, but the reality of the war changed him. We've talked about this a bit before, but it's known this as the just war theory. Just war is basically the theory that there are wars which are justifiable. There are criteria set out, and if a war meets this criteria, then it can be determined to be just. And therefore, it's acceptable for Christians to engage in it. It's things like you don't go to war simply to capture land or to punish people for doing wrong. Innocent life must be in immediate danger, and any intervention must be to protect life. World War II is seen as being one of the best examples of just war. Clearly innocent life was in danger, there was no more reasoning to be found with Hitler. Reinhold Niebuhr was another German Christian pastor who was living in the USA at the time. He was a pacifist until the beginning of World War II, when then he advocated strongly that the Allies should use force against his home nation. There were Brits who felt the same, George Orwell said in 1942, pacifism is objectively pro-fascist. It's a difficult one for us, isn't it? How do we get past this when we follow a God who is a God of love? Jesus who tells us to turn the other cheek, to lay down our sword, as the Bible reading said earlier. I read this book this week by a guy called Robert Brimlow, called What About Hitler? Wrestling with Jesus' call to non-violence in an evil world. Brimlow looks at the story of Bonhoeffer, and he argues that despite all of Bonhoeffer's clearly good reasons for getting involved in violence, there is no justification in the Bible for the followers of Jesus to ever use violence. Blessed are the peacemakers, he says. Even when Jesus was being arrested and was about to be killed, Jesus told Peter to put away his sword. 
And then Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The cross, he argues, is the once and for all definitive statement that Jesus is nonviolent. Here's another quote from an author called Tony Jones. It's Jesus' example of humility and sacrificial love to the point of death that catalyzes our own love and activates forgiveness. Jesus' death doesn't just point the way to selfless moral living. It actually draws us into a life of love and forgiveness. That's the ultimate overwhelming response to the crucifixion. Jesus' death draws us into a life of love and forgiveness. I wonder if there's something in this that might help us to get past the question of what about Hitler. Back to the history. The fighting in the First World War ended on November the 11th, 1918. But the treaty that technically ended the state of war between Germany and the Allies wasn't signed until June of the next year. It was this, the Treaty of Versailles. The Allies had been negotiating the terms of the treaty for about six months, and they all came from slightly different positions. Negotiations had been tough. France had lost over a million soldiers in the First World War. A quarter of all French men between the ages of 18 and 30 had been killed in the war. So George Clemenceau, who was the Prime Minister of France, he wanted revenge. He wanted to hammer Germany to make sure that they couldn't do this again, that they couldn't recover. There were loads of people in the UK who agreed. There was a politician, Eric Geddes, who famously said that the UK should squeeze the German lemon until the pips squeak. There were others who thought this was too far. The treaty that eventually got signed was harsh, undeniably harsh. One of the most controversial bits was this, Article 231, which required Germany to accept the responsibility for causing all of the loss and damage during the war. It became known as the War Guilt Clause. It required Germany to disarm, to make territorial concessions, and to pay reparations that would be equivalent now to 284 billion pounds. The Germans hated the treaty. Their foreign minister was called Ulrich Graf von Brockdorf Rantzow. Starting to regret that decision to take drama, reading that name. Um, and he said, we know the full brunt of hate that confronts us here. You demand from us to confess that we were the only guilty party of war. If I said this, it would be a lie. The treaty imposed a debt of nearly 300 billion pounds onto an economy that was already struggling after the war. It led to hyperinflation and nearly collapsed the German economy. And into this comes Hitler. Hitler who fed off the poverty, fed off the instability, fed off the unemployment, and the Nazi party continued to grow until he took power in 1933. The Treaty of Versailles was a huge element in Hitler's coming to power. He gave huge speeches where he said he would do away with it if he was ever elected. If the Treaty of Versailles had been more restorative, less about punishment, less retribution, relationships could have been built, rather than just entrenching the hatred between the Germans and the Allies, which just helps 20 years later to create another war 
just two decades after the war to end all wars. Restorative justice is a powerful thing. It would have been a powerful thing at the end of that war, and who knows how things might have changed then. But it's not just the big picture, is it? We can talk all day about nation versus nation, but restorative justice has something to teach each of us individually, doesn't it, in our own relationships. Last Sunday, we talked about how we disagree well, how we talk to people with whom we disagree. Another story that I read this week, this is Jess Phillips, um, an MP. Um, a guy called Michael Roby a few months ago attacked her constituency office. He was angry with her. He came to her constituency office looking for her. She wasn't there. The staff were scared. They locked the door. He tried to kick the door down to get to Jess Phillips. He was arrested and found guilty of a public order offence. But as part of the conviction, he was offered the chance to do some restorative justice work. Jess Phillips was asked if she would like to meet him, which she did. So this week, she met the guy who had been so angry with her policies that he tried to kick a door down to get at her. And they sat down together. And in a conversation, they realised that actually they did have a lot in common. They'd grown up two streets away from each other in Birmingham. And at the end of the conversation, Jess Phillips said this. She said, we're going to see each other again and we're going to work together. He's lost his job and he's had other problems getting services. So I'm going to help him get those services. Restorative justice works on all levels. I think the other thing about this is that we need to make peace. We need to work at peace. I think regardless of what you believe about what I said earlier about whether Christians are always called to non-violence or not, I think everyone would agree that violence is no more than a last resort. We need to work at peacemaking. We put this quote on the front of the news sheet today. It isn't enough to talk about peace. One must believe in it. And it isn't enough to believe in it, one must work at it. Um, some of you might remember that this time last year, uh, Oasis ran a project called Inspire. We ran commemorative services to commemorate the end, the 100 years uh, centenary of the end of the First World War at cathedrals up and down the country. Um, and at the one that I went to, the person who was leading the service, who wasn't um, one of our staff, don't worry, but he started by praying and he said, Lord God, I pray that this morning you would give us the gift of peace. And I was frustrated because the whole point of the service that we'd put together was that we were talking about making peace, about how that is an active task, making peace, not expecting it to come to us. And I think that's what we need to engage with this morning as well. So what does making peace look like to us? I think it's not just in the big things, is it? Is it peace in our workplace? Do we need to make peace in our families? You know, Christmas is coming up, and that can be a pretty fraught time for some, can't it? Worries about going home because of the poor relationship that we have with our family. What does making peace look like practically with our families at Christmas? Is it peace in our workplace? Is it peace in our family? Is it peace in our marriage? Or maybe before we even get to any of that, what about 
making peace with ourselves. In the news sheet this week, we've mentioned that we're going to be starting our Being Human course again in January. That's our four-week introduction to the church course, where we look at the commandment of Jesus um, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And what we do in that four weeks is we look at the idea of loving God and loving your neighbor and loving yourself. But we flip it on its head. Because sometimes if you've not done the work to love yourself, then it's difficult to even approach the idea of loving your neighbor and loving God. What does making peace look like to us? Do you need to make peace with yourself? If we look deep down inside ourselves, sometimes I think we discover that the reason that some of our relationships aren't peaceful is because we haven't made peace with ourselves about who we are. If that's you this morning, know this. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by a God who loves you. And all of us who are up here this morning, our prayer would be that today you start to realize that for yourself. We should move on, but as I finish, there's one more thing to say. And that's regardless of whether Bonhoeffer was right to try and kill Hitler, the fact remains that he was willing to put his life on the line to save others. In April 1933, just after Hitler came to power, Bonhoeffer said that the church must not simply bandage the victims under the wheel, but jam the spoke in the wheel itself. Don't simply bandage the victims who have found themselves under the wheel, but jam a spoke in the wheel itself. And that's what he fought for, for the rest of a life that turned out to be pretty short. We have to remember that Bonhoeffer had got out. He was in the USA. He had the easy life planned. He had the church. He was away from it all when he chose to take the very last boat back to Germany. And he chose to open himself up to a life which eventually resulted in him being executed. He also said this. The ultimate question for a responsible man is to ask not how he is to extricate himself heroically from the affair, but how the coming generation shall continue to live. Don't get out of the way if you can, just to make it safe for yourself. Put your life on the line to make sure that the coming generation shall continue to live. He had a friend, Martin Niemöller, another pastor who was more fortunate. And when the Allies emptied the concentration camps after the war, Niemöller was still alive. After getting out, Niemöller wrote this poem. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Who are we willing to speak out for? Who are we willing to speak out for? What are we willing to give up to help those who can't speak out? What are we willing to lay our lives down for? It's Remembrance Sunday. And in a minute, we're going to take communion together. We remember those impacted by wars, 
all around, not just past wars, but we also remember those people who are currently having to live through war. But as we remember, we also make the decision to work, to work for justice, to work so that wars of the like we've talked about this morning never happen again, to work for peace.